Um, I'm going to read Nehemiah 8. Um, I'll just start from the end of chapter 7. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masaiah, and on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Barni, Sherebiah, Jarmin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Marseiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving them the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the word of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered round Ezra, the teacher of the law, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and other leafy trees to make temporary shelters, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Thanks very much, Rachel. If you've got Bibles open, do keep them open. We'll be looking at the uh, scripture there in Nehemiah 8. We'll be referring to it. So we are looking at the book of Nehemiah. This is our sixth week 
um, in this series. The story of Nehemiah is about a guy called Nehemiah who has been sent from the Persian kingdom back to the land of his fathers, to Judea. And his job really is to encourage the people to build up the walls of Jerusalem, which were in ruins. So they were in ruins. The people were vulnerable and exposed. And so Nehemiah's mission really is to get those walls built. And in a nod to the theme of of the book, we've been calling this series Rebuild. And taking a nod from um, Nehemiah, we're trying to think about how we rebuild church life in this new season. Now, the thing is, though, Nehemiah is 13 chapters long, and it turns out that the walls are finished by chapter 6. So in chapter 6, verse 15, it says this, the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul, that's the month, um, in 52 days. 52 days! They managed to get the whole wall up. It was amazing. But you sort of think, you get to that, and you think, well, is that it then? Like, what happens now? What's the rest of the book about? Is it going to be like, you know, the final film, The Lord of the Rings, where they actually defeat Sauron about an hour from the end, and then there's this ongoing kind of emotional series of goodbyes that feels slightly self-indulgent? Or is, maybe that's unfair. I've upset a lot of Tolkien fans in the room, I can tell. Um, like, what, what is with the rest of this book? Is it filler? Well, it's not. Because the truth is that finishing the wall, getting those bricks in place is only the beginning. The structures may be finished, but there now needs to be a focus on deeper matters, not just the structures of the wall, but the people themselves. What is going on in their hearts? Where are they at spiritually? And as far as Nehemiah and the other leaders of the people were concerned, this was very, very important, and these matters needed to be addressed. And the same is true for us at this church. You know, it's a joy to have a new lease of life here, to be able to meet back at the school, um, to be able to kind of meet in person with our life groups increasingly, uh, for things to feel a little bit more normal, like they used to before COVID hit. And we're seeing momentum. We're seeing things get back up to speed. It's, It's a joy. But it is just the beginning for us. It's not the end. It's the beginning. Rebuilding structures and church life, it's, it's not enough, or the structures are not enough. Now, ultimately, it doesn't really matter, or what matters most is not how many programs we can run, or how well put together our Sunday services are, how full our calendar is with events, whether we can get classrooms for our children's work. Ultimately, what, ha- what matters is our hearts before God. And we could have the most well-resourced, smoothly-run church in the city, and yet our hearts could still be immature, and we could still not honor Jesus. So it's not enough to look at the structures. We need to look at our hearts. And so in our remaining weeks in Nehemiah, we're going to see a number of things that are crucial for the people of God to think about and uh, to address. Things crucial to the spiritual health of the church. And this week... Nehemiah teaches us about the need of the Bible in the church, the Bible. So let's look back down at the passage. First thing I want us to see is that the Bible needs to be taught. The Bible needs to be taught. Now we've kind of skipped forward a few chapters in Nehemiah's. We last looked at chapter 5, we're now in 8. And since then, since chapter 5, what's happened is the wall has been built and the city has been repopulated 
So a lot of people have been moving back into the city, now it's finished, and there's a record in chapter 7 of uh, a whole list of names and families who have come back to um, Jerusalem and Judea from the exile. And then in chapter 8, we are given this description of a grand occasion. So you've got all the people who are gathered in the city, in the city square. You've got men and women and, and children. It says anyone who can understand. So you can imagine the crowds, everyone cramped in this Middle Eastern climate in a city. Now, what's this occasion about? You would have thought that it would have been an occasion to kind of cut the red ribbon to declare the walls open or something. You know, maybe there's a little plaque with Nehemiah's name on it um, in the wall. But that's not why they've gathered at all. Look at verse 1. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And then verse 3. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. The center of this occasion is not the wall. The central matter of this occasion is the public reading of Scripture. It's quite a ceremony. So Ezra, who is a skilled Bible teacher, he's got a book of the Bible just before Nehemiah, kind of named after him, and Ezra and Nehemiah actually go together as, as books. Well, he's a, he's a Bible teacher, and he reads the Bible, get this, from daybreak till noon, six hours. That's a six-hour reading of the Bible. It says he reads from the book of the law of Moses, and this is a shorthand way of referring to the first five books in the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy. Now, even with six hours, he probably didn't have time to read the lot. He chose parts. He possibly read large chunks of Deuteronomy. But there he is, a six-hour Bible reading. And there's this sense of kind of pomp and ceremony to the occasion. So he has this custom-built wooden platform, it says in verse 4, where he stands above all the people and reads out the words. And there's special formalities as well. When the words are about to be read, everyone stands. You can imagine like that that kind of sound as thousands of people in, in one get up as Ezra begins to read. So the scriptures here, they take central place, and they're given reverence. But it's not just that they are read. There's an urgency and an importance that the people understand what's being read. Just look down and and notice the number of references where um, it says that people understood, or there was understanding. Verse 2, verse 3, there's a reference in verse 8 as well. So great effort is made so that the people actually grasp what is being said. In verse 7, there are a list of Levites who, we're told, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. We don't entirely know what this means. It seems like Ezra was at the front speaking, and there were these um, priests and scribes out among the people, maybe teaching and explaining what Ezra was saying to, to smaller groups. It says in verse 8 that they were giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Maybe they were translating so that the original scriptures were in Hebrew um, and the the Israelites at the time would have been speaking Aramaic, a slightly different language. So maybe there was some translation going on. Or maybe there was an interpretation and explanation. But either way, it's a priority, not just that the people listen, but that they really understand what is being said and taught to them. 
And it raises the question, why all this? Six hours. Six hours. We, we know from um, the dates given that this happened only a few days after the wall was completed. Everyone's pulled together. They read the scriptures for six hours. Why, why the focus? Which we, we're given um, a hint in verse 1. It says that the book of the law of Moses is that which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So this isn't just another book. They're not just going through a formality here. The thing that made these thousands of people gather, stand together for hours in the Middle Eastern sun in this city, cramped up, was to hear God's words. The Lord gave the law. It's his voice they were listening to. So it wasn't enough that the walls were built. The first thing that the people needed to do um, was hear from the Lord themselves. Now, God's people have always throughout history been gathered around God's words in the Bible. And if we think about what makes a healthy church, we need to understand that this is central. The Bible needs to be taught. It has to be. And that's why in, in churches like ours, that the reading of the Bible and the preaching of the Bible takes center stage in our worship services. You know, it could be tempting for us in order to gain more people and be more attractive as a church to, to fill our services with all sorts of things um, that could be more entertaining, they could draw a crowd perhaps. And yet, it is our duty and our joy under God to prioritize the Bible. And so we, we try to do that as a church. We try to uh, preach through a wide variety of scripture, often going through books chapter by chapter. We want to really dig into it. We want to see what it says and proclaim it to the whole people here. And we also aim to teach it in a way that you guys understand <laughs> what's, what it says and that you know what it means for you, that it has some actual relevance and application for your lives. That's what we're called to do. And the Bible is central for the very same reason as it was central to the Israelites back in Nehemiah. It's God's words. We believe here that we're not just reading ink on a page, but that God actually, actively speaks to us through these words. You know, a lot of people will do all sorts of things in our world to try and connect with the divine. All sorts of rituals, all sorts of meditation, all sorts of different religions and systems are set up to try and connect with the transcendent. But if you want to hear God's voice, you read the Bible. That's what the Bible claims for itself. And it means that in a sermon like this is a humbling and sobering thought. But to the degree that my words are faithful and consistent with the words of Scripture, that means God is speaking right now right now. And so the Bible is essential to us. It cannot go untaught. It's the lifeblood of the church. The Bible describes itself as bread, without which we will starve. So God's words must be heard by God's people, and so the Bible needs to be taught. Just a little piece of application here. I know some people here might be still looking at other uh, at churches, still deciding where you want to settle, um, this term. Wherever you settle, there are lots of good churches around, but settle somewhere that is devoted to teaching you the Bible. 
where scripture is central and revered and respected and taught so that you can understand it. It needs to be taught. Secondly, the Bible needs to be received. You know, one of the striking things about this passage is not so much that there's this six-hour Bible reading and all the effort that's gone into teach it, but that the people are really up for it. Have you noticed that? Look at verse 1. It says that they gathered together as one. There's purpose and unity. It even says, they told Ezra to bring out the book of the law. So there was a hunger in the people. They wanted to hear it. We already noted that there were men and women and children in, in the crowd. Anyone who could understand what was being said, they were all there. And look at the end of verse 3. We're told that all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Six-hour focus. Imagine that. No collective boredom. No clock watching. No quick check on Facebook. Don't worry, I'm not going to speak for six hours this morning. I won't test how consistent we are with uh, Nehemiah's time. They had hunger. They had desire to listen. They gave their attention. And so Ezra, when he was speaking, he had a captive audience. They were focused. And so for the reading and teaching of the Bible to have its full effect, this attentive spirit is necessary. You know, in one sense, it's not enough that the Bible is taught. In one sense, it needs to be received by those who hear it. You can have the best sermon series in the world, but if we don't hear and take on board what is said from the scriptures, then the effects will just be limited. So what that means is there's kind of a double responsibility on us in this church, particularly as we try and rebuild our church culture at this time. Firstly, there's a responsibility on people like me. I have to teach the Bible in a way that is faithful and in a way that can be understood so that we know together what Almighty God has to say to us. And you should expect that. You have the right to expect that from leaders in the church like me. But the responsibility is also on us as a church to receive the Bible, to receive the Word, to give it our attention and focus and thought. Otherwise, we'll be hindered in our growth. And how do we know that we've received Scripture properly? Look at verse 6. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces on the ground. The appropriate response to God's words is worship. It's worship. When we, when we grasp what the Bible says, it should make us sense the scale of God, his greatness, his goodness, his grace towards us. That should become massive in our minds. Everything else should shrink. And as we read it and grasp it, we respond with words of praise and prayer. Lord, you're amazing. You're amazing. We know the Bible has had its intended effect when we're brought to our knees. I recently heard a, a church leader talk about how some Christians can think or say things that are quite unhelpful about the Bible. <laughs> he said... Um, He's slightly annoyed when people say things like, I really want to get the book of Romans under my belt. 
Have you ever come across that kind of phrase? The idea that we can, we can master this book. I'll, I'll, go, I'll go and read it and, and tick that off. You know, like the Bible is, is knowledge to be acquired or an English literature assignment. But it's not, is it? We'll never get the book of Romans under our belts. We'll never get any book of scripture under our belts, as it were. We'll never master it. The Bible is an inexhaustible fountain. And it's not about us getting knowledge. The end goal of this sermon is not so that you have more info in your heads, not just that. The reason we look at scripture, we study it, we preach it, is so that we will praise Jesus. Our hearts, not just our heads, have to be engaged. That's the goal. That's how we know that we've received scripture properly. And if we're honest with ourselves, I'm sure we'll realize that perhaps this isn't happening as much as it should be. Maybe we haven't been brought to our knees in a while, having read the Bible. And there there could be a few reasons for that. The first might be that we're just simply neglectful. We may not focus during sermons. We tune off or even fall asleep. Or we let the busyness of life crowd out our Bible reading day by day. Perhaps we're selective, so when we read the Bible, we may just stay in the safe bits, the uh, untroubled waters of the Gospels and the Psalms, and a few memory verses. So we enjoy the bits that resonate with us, but the bits we find a little bit harder, we, we stay away from, we don't read, or we don't seek to understand them. But that's an unbalanced diet, isn't it? Like all carbs, no protein. And some of us here just have problems with the Bible, full stop. You may have concerns about its truth, about its reliability, or even its morality. You know, if you have questions about that, it's good that you've got questions. You're allowed to ask them. And I think, you know, to be fair, that there are good answers to some of those questions. But I guess what I'm trying to encourage you to do is to press in to those questions. Press into those difficulties. Lean in. Try and find out what's, what's going on. Find answers. Because the stakes are pretty high. You know, the Bible makes big claims. It makes really, really big claims. It claims that it knows you. It knows you personally. More than that, it claims that without it, you will never understand yourself. You will always be a mystery to yourself unless you grasp what Scripture says. Now, that's a massive claim, isn't it? Bold. Audacious, one might say. And yet it's worth checking out, isn't it? There will be in this room many people who can testify not to the fact that they have read the Bible, but that the Bible reads them. And that as we've looked at it, we've seen it just explain ourselves in ways that we would never have been able to grasp ourselves. Is it not worth looking into further? And so maybe if we're not receiving the word, as we should do, like Nehemiah pictures it, maybe this is a time to reflect and reassess. The Bible needs to be received. Finally, the Bible brings joy. The Bible brings joy. There'll be another group of us who struggle with the Bible in this room. And that will be those of us who are just feeling a little bit flat spiritually, who are maybe weary or aware of their cold hearts. 
Well, friends, this one's for you. Look down at verse 9. There's a particularly peculiar moment. We're told that during this six-hour Bible marathon, it gets quite emotional. It says that all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Collective mourning and grief, tears, cries, perhaps even audible wailing in the crowd. And no doubt this was in response to hearing those commands and a realization that the people had not lived up to what they'd been taught. They were told about how to love God and love others, to not be selfish, to be wholehearted in their worship. And they just realized, That's, we've not done that. And I'm sure we've had the same experience sometimes reading the Bible. It just seems like a list of demands that we've not been able to keep. It just feels like a burden that we can't carry. We're just aware of all our failings when we read the Bible. But Nehemiah kind of rebukes them. He tells them to stop. Look at verse 9. He says, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Now, this might come across as a little bit harsh, mind it, but tone is everything, really, isn't it, when you read that sentence? What's his tone? And I think, actually, there is a tenderness to what Nehemiah says. Look at verse 10. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. He's trying to encourage the people. He's trying to lift them up. And his point is that, look, this is a time for celebration. It's a holy day. It's a festival. And during one of God's festivals, we're to celebrate. We're to rejoice. And so he basically tells them to have a party. They're to enjoy good food and wine. They're to share extra with the poor who might not have as much. They're to enjoy the day. It's joyful. It's joyful. So grief over sin has its place but that time isn't now. This time is for celebrating. And look at verse 12. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Do you notice that? There's a contrast with verse 9 there. So in verse 9, God's word causes the people to cry and mourn. Then in verse 12, an understanding of God's word causes them to rejoice and celebrate. So there is a place for grieving and sadness in the Christian life, and the Bible doesn't deny us that. There's a place for mourning over our own failure to live up to the standards that God sets for us. But that mourning is not the final note. It's not the resounding sound. Mourning always turns to joy. The resounding notes in our hearts should be one of celebration and gratitude and joy when we read the Bible. And perhaps we see this illustrated most clearly in verses 13 to 18. So in verse 13, um, a group of leaders get together, they have a bit of a Bible study, and they realize that they've not been, or they need to, um, celebrate a festival called the Feast of Booths, or in the NIV it refers to, not booths, but temporary shelters. Now, the Feast of Booths is still celebrated today by Jewish people. It's the Jewish festival of Sukkot, it happened in um, September this year, actually, quite recently. And ideally, it's an outdoor festival. 
um, which works when you're in a Middle Eastern climate that's warm. In Manchester, probably not as outdoors. But what happens is, in the Feast of Booths at Sukkot, Jewish homes, they will create structures called booths. And the idea is that you sit and eat in these booths. They're normally made outside, and you decorate them with all sorts of plants and branches. And the point of this festival is to remember a key point of Israelite history when they escaped Egypt. So the Israelites were in slavery under Pharaoh. They experienced oppression and injustice, but God brought them out of slavery. He set them free, and he led them through the wilderness towards the promised land of Canaan. And as they wandered through the desert, obviously they couldn't build houses, so they were in these makeshift booths. So the Feast of Booths for the Israelites, it was a sort of reenactment, a kind of um, role-play type thing with, with, with the with the booth, it, was, it, was, it conjured up those early days of freedom. It brought positivity to mind. It was, it was a joyful festival. Many of us can conjure up in our minds the joy of going on holiday or flying abroad. Some of us may not have done that in a while. Now, I know flying can be stressful for some of us, but most of us know that excitement of, of getting on a plane and knowing that you're just getting away, you're escaping for a week or two as you head to your destination. I remember one time I was, um, I was flying abroad. I think I was going to the Czech Republic. I'd lived there for a couple of years, but then when I moved back, I had a couple of chances to go back and see old friends. And I was really excited about it. And I was sat on the plane, but then there was a, there was a moment of anxiety because we were, I was on the plane, but the plane didn't take off. There was a delay. And I, and I started to feel anxious. You know, I was particularly keen to get away from life in Manchester for a week. I was excited to go and see friends, but I was like, what's happening with this plane? Oh, am I gonna have to get off the plane? Is it gonna be canceled? Is my holiday gonna be ruined? But in due course, the plane, its engine started, it went down the runway, and it took off. And I looked out the window, and Manchester's gray skies soon dissipated, and we you know, flew, ascended above the cloud line, and I saw this brilliant blueness of the sky and the sunshine that was uninterrupted. And as, the, as there was the kind of propulsion taking off, and I sunk back in my seat, at the same time I could feel a sense of relaxation in my body, because it was like I'd escaped. <laughs> I'd made it, I was off somewhere exciting. And you know, the Feast of Booths was kind of there to capture that, that, that sort of feeling. Sitting in that makeshift booth was kind of like a reminder of being on the plane. It was a, it was a reminder of, of that feeling of escape, of, of newness, away from the darkness of slavery, onto the land of promise. And so as, as the Israelites made these booths and, and sat under them, they were reminded that the Lord had saved them that they'd been carried out of Egypt. He'd paid the ticket, as it were, for them to get out. And so it was joyful. As they looked at these makeshift booths, it just reminded them of salvation. And it was a celebration. And you see in verse 17 that as these Israelites keep the Feast of Booths, it, said, it says that their joy was great. It was joyful. And how were they given this joy? It was because God's word, the Bible, had brought them this joy. Through it, they'd been 
pointed towards keeping this festival, and in keeping this festival, they'd remembered all the good things that God had done for them. You see, for the Israelites, even the book of the law wasn't just about rules. It wasn't just about demands on their um, time and efforts and energies. It spoke to them of their salvation. It reminded them of all that the Lord had done for them. And the same is true for us. You know, the Bible isn't primarily a list of rules. And though there are times where we see that we don't, we fall short of God's um, standards for us, ultimately, the final note is one of joy. Why? Because it teaches, uh, teaches us about our salvation. First and foremost, it's a retelling of what Jesus has done for us. He himself says that the Bible is all about him. And as we read it, we just get fresh glimpses, different perspectives on his salvation and what that means for us. Even in the Feast of Booths, we can see that, can't we? You know, for us as Christians, we were once in slavery, not in Egypt, but enslaved to unhealthy desires. We did not love God. We did not love others as we should have done. We had no hope, only the prospect of eternal judgment, and we were helpless to do anything about it. We were in shackles, enslaved. But the Lord Jesus has provided us with escape, a way out. He's put us on the plane. And even now, we're flying away from that old darkness of an old life. We can experience new freedom. We're on our way to a promised land. For every Christian, we are heading to a glorious country, a world renewed, a new creation full of life and happiness, where we will see Jesus Christ and we will dwell with him forever. You see, the Bible tells us this. It tells us the story again and again. And so as we read it, we can have joy. You know, when we, even when we're feeling low and weary on the journey, as it were, to the promised land, in life now, with all its difficulties, the Scriptures remind us of where we're going, where we've been, what the Lord Jesus has done for us, and our final destination and as Nehemiah says in, in verse 10, the joy of the Lord is our strength. How are you going to keep going when things are difficult in life? It's by reading scripture, letting it tell you again and again who Jesus is, what he has done for you, who he is to you right now, and who he will be and where you're going. It will give you a joy that will keep you going through life's hardships. See, this is, the, this is why the Bible is essential as we rebuild this church. It's the words of Almighty God to us. It, it needs to be taught clearly and faithfully. We need to receive it. But as we receive it, it will give us joy. And that joy will lead us to, to worship and give us strength as we continue through the Christian life. Let's pray, shall we? Lord God, thank you that you have given us your words in Scripture, that they're not dry, that they are active, living and active, Hebrews says, that you speak to us daily, that we can hear your voice as we read. Father, I pray for us as a church that we would always remain true to your words, 
that this would always be a church and a community where the Bible is prized, where it's prioritized, where it takes center stage in all of our ministry, but not just on a, on a Sunday morning, Lord, in our, in our homes daily for each of us individually. Transform us by it, Lord. Give us, give us joy. Many of us struggle with Scripture for various reasons. We neglect it. We are scared of some parts of it, intimidated by it. Lord, may it be a source of joy to all of us. Help us to see the goodness that's within it so that we would pursue it and read it and be given life by it. In Jesus' name, amen.